0: This is Counterculture with Marie Busky, Wednesdays at 10am on Reality Check Radio. Good morning, and you are with Counterculture here with Marie on Reality Check Radio, and it's with great privilege I introduce to you Helen Plagrose, political and cultural writer and tea connoisseur. Good morning, Helen. How are you?
1: I'm very well, thank you, Marie. Thank you for having me on. Oh, oh, she! Oh, she's
0: got her cuppa as well. Excellent! I've actually got got my cuppa too. It is so great to have you on. I spoke to Mike Nania several weeks ago, who is the maker of the Reformers, of which you featured, and I did say to him, "I would dearly love to talk to Helen." How on earth did a lovely lady like you get tied up with a couple of cheeky scallywags like like Lindsay and Bagosian?
1: <laughs> well, I started writing. Uh, at about the same time, I, I was I was part of the new atheist movement. I, I was very critical of religion, and I was studying late medieval Christianity. And it was evidence based epistemology. How do we know what is true? I, I think it's I- empirical evidence is is very much my thing, and consistently liberal ethics. You know, to, uh, keeping it um, treating everybody as an individual. I was critical of religion on those grounds. And then as this, as the new atheist mo- moment passed and the the postmodern moment began, I, I, I was studying postmodernism at university and at the same time, my feminism was being overtaken by it. So I started writing more and more about that when Jim and, and Peter began their project. First of all, I was red flag catcher. I, I was just to read things through and and pick out things that would, would be spotted as not theoretically accurate. And then I got a larger and larger role in, um, in the writing process and fully joined in with the silliness.
0: Mike made it appear there was a certain element of fun there. When you look back at it now, because five, six, five years ago, it was. Did you enjoy it? Was it? Did Did you have fun as well as creating something, or was it real fly by the seat pants stuff?
1: I have a confession. I really like postmodernism. It's absolute nonsense, but it's so much fun to play with. And I can't do do that openly and straightforwardly because it's nonsense. So being able to play with it, make it do all kinds of weird and horrible things and argue things that clearly aren't true, was fun. I enjoy getting into the theory. It was quite a lot of, of hard work as well because we, we had to go into considerable contortions to make certain things work with the theory but yeah it, it was um it was an interesting project Peter was is responsible for a lot of the the silliness I'm sort of responsible for a lot of the theoretical detail and and Jim brought things together he's the the systemizer and also renowned scholar on men and masculinities.
0: One of the things that I found really intriguing, and I should say to Mike, creating that body of work, and it's only been released now, what are the changes that you've seen in that period of time? Because from a cultural perspective, from a lay person looking at it from this part of the world, I just started becoming aware of those things at that time. And I've seen it gone from fringe in 2017, 2018, to completely mainstreamed. Is that an observation
1: you've had? It seems to have it happened in different times in, in different countries. So we traced the sort of mainstreaming of it to about two thousand and ten. That that was when we started seeing in the US particularly a lot of these ideas becoming more culturally accepted in institutions. It sped up a great deal at in 2015 which is when we really just um started writing about it and that was when that was the big topic of discussion and 2020 of course the death of george floyd that was the light touch paper moment when when everything exploded but i found with work with writing with counterweight with working with counterweight that People are at different stages of it, depending on where they are, and so it seemed to me New Zealand stayed a little bit clear of it for a little bit longer than than the UK. It seemed to be America was hit first, then Canada and the UK at about the same time, and then Australia and New Zealand were at the forefront, and then we had France, Germany, the Netherlands. And I'm still hearing from people all over Europe, it's just hitting now, writing to me saying, what the hell is this? So it's kind of doing it spread outwards from the US.
0: Why do you think it's something so prevalent in the Western canon? I think
1: because we have a significant amount of cultural guilt. So we are the people who, who have developed liberal democracies at a time when we have to look back at our past and the things we've done. The the, the British Empire, slavery, colonialism, settler colonialism, these are real things that that happened that caused real suffering. Now, rather than address these issues in a liberal way and say, we can't change history, we can address the the aftermath of things that have happened, what has lingered on is a sense of of post-colonial guilt, and post-racial guilt, which make a certain subset of us of just really want to keep repairing the past, but doing so in really counterproductive ways. When it's the critical social justice, that, that, I mean, there are very productive ways that we can redress past imbalances. So, for example, in, in the US, the descendants of enslaved Africans are still financially disadvantaged because their ancestors have only been allowed to be financially successful for two generations. So that is something that can can be addressed by looking at educational opportunities in, in those areas. These are materialist, empirical ways of addressing imbalances. But when we start getting the postmodern thing where, where, you know, that there's certain knowledges that black people have and certain knowledges that trans people have, and all this power is about how we talk about things. So we have to focus on talking about things in the right way. Not only does it not really help anything, nor does it represent the the views of the majority of the people it's supposed to help, but it, it gets in the way of doing anything practical.
0: Mm. So you mentioned that in terms of ways of knowing. So from the Postmodern in theory. So they're claiming that if you're one of these minority or oppressed classes, that you have a special way of knowing something, so therefore that needs to be elevated in order to create equity amongst that class. What I find really interesting with that is that here in New Zealand we have a thing called Te Ao Māori, which is the Māori way of knowing, or Te Mataranga Māori. They have now taken that Māori way of knowing and Māori science and they've now embedded that into New Zealand children's science curriculum. Yes. So where do you draw the line in terms of these ways of knowing? Don't all individuals in a liberal society has a, have a way of knowing? And shouldn't all of that be equally as recognised as the person next to them? Um,
1: well, no. I, I I think when it comes to establishing what is true, the correspondence model of truth, as they put it. It's something is true if it corresponds with reality. So when you start bringing in indigenous or religious um, cultural myth into science, then you're going to do science badly. So I, I was following the case particularly of Garth Cooper in New Zealand, and he, such an eminent scientist. I think he has 40 patents now. He's he's just been absolutely remarkable in the the progress that he's made in in treating serious illness. And he is of Maori background and he's now to be told this is not his way of knowing and that he has a different way. And here in the UK, it, it is particularly insulting when this is told to people who are of South Asian or African descent that, you know, science is a white Western way of knowing. Well, no, it isn't. Go back to uh, history, have a look, um, see what was happening in the um, medieval period. Christendom was chaos, to be honest. The, the Islamic world was doing the best that it. Science belongs to everybody. And people do. Cultural myths, cultural stories are very, very important to people. Certainly, bring them in to the richness of historical study, of literary study. Do not put them on the level of science unless they they can correspond with reality. And don't insult Maori or Indian or any kind of anybody who is not a Westerner by telling them that that science is not their way of knowing. It's it's a recreation of that old colonialist way of thinking that the white Western man is the the purveyor of reason and and knowledge, and everybody else is perhaps a noble savage who can be, you know, um, dictated to or or indulged in their stories. It's it's patronising and it's it's wrong.
0: You've just answered one of the questions that I have because for me as an observation, I've always felt that a lot of those who were really strong critical social justice and they would throw out the bumper stickers, things like do the reading or stay in your lane or do the work and they would try and line everybody up to fit into the boxes that they want and particularly when they were doing that to Marty. To me as an observer, now I'm quarter Māori, so I uh, have lived in both worlds within my family and it was never, this is more Māori or this is more Pākehā, it was just our family. It was just part of the milieu and the fabric of who we were. We didn't divide ourselves out into one race or another. We just saw ourselves as a family, as you should, who had traditions that may have been drawn from different cultural pasts, like every family. And I would see that and think to myself, gosh, it almost feels like colonialism 2.0, but woe betide if you ever mentioned that to them, you would get into a lot of issues. Classic liberalism, though, the the liberal foundation of discussion and debate. Can that survive this period of time?
1: I certainly hope it can, and I think it... It will ultimately, because it's just too useful. We've had that period now where we have learned that allowing people to speak, allowing people to experiment has produced advanced scientific knowledge and human rights. So I think that there are always going to be people who are fighting for this. For most of our history, We have gone down the normal route of having one group who had all the power, who told everybody else what to think and what to say, and and we still have this in other parts of the world. And it, it just doesn't work as well as nations which have operated as liberal democracies and have allowed people to have a range of ideas to express them, to explore them. It's just too useful. So I disagree with the pessimists who are post-liberal, who think that liberal democracies have have had their moment that they're going to die out. And maybe that's partly wishful thinking, because I don't want to go back to this anti-scientific, anti-liberal time where people have to pretend to believe what they're told to believe and die in childbirth. But mm. I, I don't think that's that that's realistically going to happen because I think too many of us are liberal at heart even if we're impatient with what we're seeing right now and we're feeling we need something more radical I think most people are still standing for freedom of inquiry freedom of belief freedom of speech and for treating people as individuals because People are individuals, and it's very difficult not to notice that if you mix with a great number of them.
0: Mm. I think as we go further and further beyond the pandemic era, where we were told that we needed to relinquish our individualism in order to benefit the collective, which is essentially what happened for all those years everywhere, particularly in Western environments, that we then start rediscovering that individualism again. That's part of that pandemic hangover. I mean, you're in Europe. You are seeing governments change now from normally centre-left, more leftward-leaning governments, to now swinging back in the other direction. Do you worry that things could swing back too far in the other direction, which then again means sort of same shit, different day?
1: Yes, uh, this is the big worry. Something is going to push back critical social justice and my fear has always been that it will be the populist right rather than the the liberals and and by liberals i i mean everybody who supports that that universalist individual approach so liberals on the right liberals on the left that is something that we're seeing now we're seeing a rise of ethno-nationalist ideas of white identity politics And I mean, we've always had white identity politics, that's the original racism, but we're now seeing a kind of reactive white identity politics, which is responding to the identity politics of the critical social justice movement. We humans, we we have this tendency towards reciprocity, which can work so well to make us a cooperative species. And it can also really inspire our sort of our sense of vengeance and and tit for tat and, well, if you behave like this, then I'm going to behave like this and justifying things. I'm I'm seeing a lot of arguments now on Twitter. I don't know if um, you saw a wonderful essay by Adam Coleman.
0: um, Adam Adam was my very first interview on the show. (laughs) He is wonderful. (laughs)
1: he's <laughs> he's a little more conservative than me i think but he he just absolutely nailed the problem with the rising a sort of white identity politics the the trying to push back you know if if we have people who are saying everything is racist then there's a tendency for another group to rise up and say nothing is racist in reality some things are racist so trying to keep that balance, that nuanced evidence-based position where we're not knee-jerk reacting against certain ideologies that we perceive other people to be having, but trying to look at reality as it actually is, is really essential right now. But it's so much more difficult than simply taking a a side and arguing for it. And that's how we see the polarisation grow.
0: Mm. Yeah, we're I mean, I've certainly seen that with, I've got a lot of friends in the uh, homosexual and gay community. And for years, they had complete integration, like they weren't perceived for the homosexuality. They were just Joe Blogs like everybody else. Now, all of a sudden, they're told that that is something that needs to be at the forefront, almost ahead of them. And they're thinking, well, hold on a minute here. No, it's not. And it's, it, yeah, you're right. I do worry about that pushback too far back to the, to the other side. It's like, the Overton window has moved so much. Well, ha- how do you reclaim the middle? And what is the middle?
1: I, I think the, the example you used where the site think things just advanced so much that, that gay um lesbian people d- didn't have to put that at the foreground of their identity now. And that was this ridiculous um, essay came out recently. Um homonormativity killed the radical queer. Um it's this idea. That to be homonormative, it's just to be a, a gay person who fits into society. And to, this is is frowned upon because you're supposed to take on your sexuality as a political identity. An increasing number of gay men and there's been saying, well, it isn't. I'm just romantically and sexually attracted to people of the same sex. I don't want to make this a political identity. And then we hear nonsense like uh, Pete Buttigieg not being really gay because um, he didn't have the right ideas. And Nicole Hannah-Jones saying um, that you can be, I think it was racially black, but not politically black, not really black. And when we we, we recently had a ridiculous argument when the, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Kwasi Korteng, was destroying the economy about whether he was authentically black enough or not. Can we look at what he's doing to the economy, please? But, <laughs> yeah. So yes, yeah, so we we get this situation, and it it is quite difficult for gay men at the moment who very commonly don't want to politicise their their identity. They're quite happy. Now that they can refer to their husband, they can go to events uh, with their partner. Nobody really bats an eye, and then lesbians have got the additional uh, problem of um, having often having to prove that they are not a turf before yeah. <laughs> they can get anywhere.
0: And and the feedback that I'm getting from gays and lesbians too is that they are now starting to see people are cautious around them because their instant assumption is, is that they're part of this radical social justice movement. And yes. so many of them aren't. I mean, there is certainly a divorce I'm seeing uh, between you know the LGBs and the TQI plus alphabet brigade. And it worries me that all the decades of work and growth as societies are going to be undone through this critical social justice movement.
1: Yes. I, I mean, we're, we're seeing that. And I I think, yeah, gay, gay men, lesbians are particularly vulnerable at the moment. When I wrote um, the essay, uh, Identity Politics Does Not Continue the Work of the Civil Rights Movement, I, I like many others, predicted that we're going to push back. The progress that we've made and you see a lot now on, on social media a lot of silliness sometimes from gay men themselves saying i would never have supported same-sex marriage if i knew it was going to result in this well yeah. clearly it wouldn't uh you know th- this is that the liberal project is essentially it says society is essentially good but it's not in including enough people in the benefits it has to offer. So when marriage was expanded to include same-sex couples, that was a liberal endeavour. We're including more people in that, like we included women in the right to vote, like we included black people in the right to attend all kinds of universities, join professions. We're becoming more liberal by including more people within a structure that is essentially good. Now, the critical social justice approach wants to revolutionise that liberal order and say that it it wasn't good in the first place. So we are now seeing quite a lot of of gay men and, and lesbians being suspected of being politically queer, which really means taking on a non-standard sexuality or gender identity in order to politically subvert concepts of masculine and feminine, gay and straight. And the vast majority of people aren't doing that. And this extends to trans people as well. The vast majority of trans people don't want to go around subverting norms of, of gender identity. They just want to live their lives. And And I, like you, am worried about growing homophobia Again, a uh, feeling that there's some kind of slippery slope that we should not have allowed homosexuality to become socially acceptable in the first place. And how this is going to affect gay couples, their their right to marry, their their right to adopt is is a very worrying phenomenon at the moment.
0: It mm, is concerning. You mentioned before around uh, your exchequer and the financial situation. Now, here, financially here at the moment, the country is in dire straits. We were only one place ahead of Equatorial Guinea and the OECD in terms of our growth. It is pretty bad. I've often seen that these ideologies can only flourish in an environment of affluence. So, what do you think an economic downturn or an economic squeeze will do to help? potentially wake those sleepy people in, up in the middle who go along to get along, don't push back against this ideology, and by not pushing back against it, particularly in places like the workplace or with an education or in other institutions that they interact with, they're then enabling that to continue. How do you think an economic crisis perhaps will help swing things back the other way and get some normalisation going on? <laughs>
1: But I think that's a, that's an interesting question. I'm not sure it's one that I'm I'm qualified to answer. I I think yes. What we we certainly see um, a correlation between uh, wealthy institutions and wealthy countries and wokeness. So the universities which are are having the biggest problem with intolerance of a variety of ideas are usually in the US. The the Ivy League ones, while the community colleges are just in getting on with things, um, and we, we don't see uh, wokeness becoming a huge problem in the less wealthy countries. So potentially, yes, it, if we were to return to a state of a sort of existential, when we, those existential survival values came to the fore, then then perhaps people would grow tired of of the whole wokeness project. I think people already are to a certain extent. In the UK, I I think we have peaked and I think we are coming down the other side now. So I'm hopeful about that. But I I have often wondered what could push this back. And when COVID came, first of all, I thought perhaps this, this one thing where we are all uh, equally threatened by a potential virus that we don't know the consequences are perhaps now we will set aside divisions of race, sex, sexuality, and kind of pull together uh no um, immediately we we had opinion pieces on men dying in greater numbers, women most affected and people of, of color most affected by by this uh, due to systemic racism uh, just it will take a lot for uh, people to learn to stop reading. Everything through these invisible power systems of identity-based white white supremacy, patriarchy, transphobia, uh, homophobia. But I think we are running out of patience with these people.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm seeing for a lot of everyday folk uh, that necessarily haven't gone through the academy, so they don't haven't been exposed to that education. They trade-based. They're going along to get along. For a number of them, that social contract has now been broken particularly in this country, because we've had essentially six years of governance where they have been steeped in this six ways to Sunday. So it, it will be intriguing. We go to the polls very soon. So it is looking like that we will see a change. But it is intriguing to know how it will sort of manifest. For us with the pandemic, what we saw was exactly that, that that race, oh, uh, Maria are being greatly more affected or at risk through to the the pandemic than others. So uh, more resources and money and and things were thrown at uh, supporting those groups, which I don't actually have a problem with, but I'm all about outcomes. So throwing money at a problem with a racial justification is fine if a positive outcome is actually achieved. But it's like what you were saying before with the economy, what we had was excessive amounts of money spent for almost zero outcome, so then that creates resentment because you've got others who are desperately in need and were created a lower priority on the basis of race. And so we've now seen a a widening, again, of race relations in this country, this division that has been driven and the pandemic was was part of that problem, as well as other, I won't bore you with the details in terms of other governmental policy around land and water and rights and use. It's it's pretty extensive. Dehumanisation, though, of those groups, if you're in the out group, we have also seen a lot of dehumanisation here. For example, with the pandemic, if you were someone that spoke out against the pandemic regardless of how credentialed you were, and we had some very heavily credentialed people here who were putting their hands up saying, well, actually, is there a plan B? Could we discuss alternatives? Is there a way that we can do this that will work? You know, we are islands, so therefore we have a natural upgrade to other parts of the world. How do we take that benefit to protect ourselves in this country? And they were roundly shouted down, or at worst, excommunicated from polite society, for a lack of a better term. And then we divided the citizenry again through vaccination. And that today still continues. How do we recover from that, do you think?
1: The problem at the moment is people are arguing a number of things in clusters that really don't go together. So because I am critical of the critical social justice, the woke approach, I am often assumed to also be in favour of um, leaving the European Union and being sceptical of vaccines and sceptical of climate change. And this all seems to come under a a clump of feeling that the the government is making overarching (laughs) rules for everybody that are oppressive, that are constraining them. And I can see that, but I think we need to separate those things out because when we're looking at what is true, there's going to be different answers. It makes no sense to say because the critical approaches to race don't work, therefore climate change isn't real. And this is, I know it sounds ridiculous, but this is, is the kind of mentality that we're seeing here. One of our clients was a climate scientist and he wanted to work on more energy efficient a provision for indigenous communities in new zealand and he found himself in trouble for saying that um, he had not faced any racism or islamophobia since arriving in the country he 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 was from the middle east and this got in the way of him actually doing some practical proactive work so and, he needed
0: to suffer oppression in order yeah. to be able to continue his work in science yeah. It's absolutely ridiculous. uh,
1: Needed to to get on board. And so I I had to to work with him because he wasn't going to pretend that he had not been welcomed by New Zealanders, that he'd had any racism at all. But he, he also wanted to do his job. And so we had to try and coach him into how to talk about this without hitting any of those minefields. And I think that is the way forward is to decrease the number of minefields just just work on that if we have scientists who disagree about the best way to contain a virus is not my area of expertise so i can't speak too much on that then yes bring them into a, a conversation together i did not for example think that the idea of joe rogan's uh, to have kennedy and uh, dr hoties uh, o- o-
0: o- yeah, yes,
1: uh, t- together in a, in a debate situation was really a very good one to work because Kennedy is a politician, he's used to quick fire questions and um, verbal spin, and Hoskins uh, is a scientist. He's going to need to unpick things gradually. But mm. this is what the academy is meant to be for. If we have scientists who disagree on how to balance containing a virus, re- reducing the transmission of it without damaging people's mental health, health, livelihood, and general lives, then yet we need to keep focusing on this whole concept of bringing ideas together, this very Mm. liberal idea of the marketplace of ideas. And I Mm. I know it's old-fashioned, people think it's naive it's to um, um and we need more than ideas, we need action. But before we can take any action, we need to convince enough people that they have to take that action. And by for doing that, we need to explain our ideas and convince them. But then that's
0: that cycled us back to the academy because I mean this all sort of started there. And from what you're saying, it probably needs to finish there. But how can it do that when those who have those discussions that are able to spark that debate and spin things around. So the example I gave to you of the person who is very well credentialed is at Auckland University and is holding onto their job by the skin of their teeth and has had to self-censor themselves to a point in order to maintain employment and they don't know how long they're going to stay. Now, that to me is a tragedy. And then you look at people like Peter who was a firebrand in the university, if you get an opportunity, listeners, to have a look at, um, there are still some of Pete's lectures, and I think there were a few that that Mike may have popped up on his Reformers page, that he had done with some of his students. You know, he's encouraging these minds to actually think about a different alternative or, or critically think and actually help them bounce ideas around. Well, if that is disappearing, how do we... How do we get it back? How, if those people who challenge those ideas within what is now the norm are shouted out, the Bretts and the Heathers and the and the Peters and now the Petersons, how do we allow those people to thrive back in academia with this level of censorship or it's an impossible thought right now?
1: I do not know the answer to fixing academia, I'm afraid.
0: Is that, a, is that a whole nother hour, Helen?
1: Yes. We are seeing... As, as culture, you know, they say politics is, is downstream of culture. Academia is a reflection of culture as well. So there's a kind of feedback loop going on between what's coming from the universities that's going through cultural norms, that's in, going into politics. And from my perspective, because I argue for ideas and how we should think about things and how we should understand our rights as free agents to think and believe and speak and live freely. My contribution to this is trying to inspire more people to say confidently, I don't believe what you believe, and I don't have to. If we can get more people standing up and saying this at the same time, we will push this back but it how how to do it immediately how to save your friend right now mm-hmm. i don't know there there are many casualties and this isn't going to be a quick process i think we we have to change the cultural zeitgeist we have to get people absolutely sick of being told what they may think and may say and that's not an easy thing. Sometimes people seem to think, well, we just need to defund the universities and set up these alternative things. And But if culture hasn't changed, we're going to come up against the same problems. It's going to be different people deciding who may say which, who may say what. And what we need to do is try to inspire in people a greater respect for tolerance of different ideas, for understanding the value of bringing them together and arguing them out. Mm.
0: So you mentioned before this client that you had done here. So what sort of work are you doing now? Are you actually helping people that get into these sort of situations navigate through them internationally? Is that the sort of work you're doing?
1: Yeah, I have a few situations like that. So people will... Come to me right when I was running counterweight, we had about a hundred people a month. Now I'm I'm just involved with with a few individuals and with a couple of institutions. I have a religious institution and a large human rights charity who are having a problem at the moment. So I'm I'm trying to help them rewrite their policies so that they can bring this more in line with freedom of belief. We oppose racism, sexism, homophobia, any kind of discrimination against anybody on the grounds of their immutable characteristics. But there is no specific way from which you have to do this. You can do this because you are a liberal and you think everybody is an individual. You can you can be a Christian and think everybody is is the son is a, is a child of God and deserves equal respect. You can come from any perspective you want for workplaces, a simple rule. Don't be racist. Don't be sexist. Mm. Don't be a hold, dick. <laughs> yeah, essentially. Don't be a dick. But hold your own values. So I'm I am doing a bit of that, certainly. I'm finishing my book, which is a guide to dealing with this in the workplace. It has template letters. It has a guide as to how to recognise what level of a problem You have, because unfortunately, we've seen some people see words like diversity, equity and inclusion and go into full on panic mode and over and and charge in when actually the problem that they were imagining wasn't actually there. So trying to make sure that you're understanding and responding proportionately, then understanding how these ideas work, what the common speaking points are, uh, how to respond to them this kind of very practical broken down guide because most of the people that i was talking to and and um, and working with were were blue and white collar workers they're not academics you know that they don't know the difference between decolonization and diversification it it needs to be much more bringing it down to a simple level, which is, yes, I am behind any policy against discrimination. No, I do not agree to pretend to believe in these particular Mm. theories.
0: Yeah, I know. That sounds like fantastic work. And I think you're right. Sometimes these journeys do take a single step. I'm a firm believer, actually, it's the next generation. I look at my sons and their friends. So they're all teens. And I have a slew of teenagers through this house every week. And I listen to their conversations and it gives me hope. So I'm really quietly hopeful that this big ship will turn around and we will get just a little bit more balance back. Uh, I also, too, got introduced to Helen originally, as well as her work with The Grievance Studies of Fear, was actually the, the book that kind of came out of that, really, which with you and James, which is called Cynical Theories, How Activist Scholarship Made Everything About Race, Gender and Identity and Why This Harms Everybody. If you don't have a copy of this, I do suggest that you get it. For me, this really helped explain the differences between all the different theories in terms of Marxism, postmodernism and all of the neoliberalism and everything else and where it all fit together. And And if I sort of summed this book up, it would be that Mark Twain quote, you know, history doesn't repeat, but it often rhymes. And this told me a lot of the original tunes that were being played and helped me put things into context for where we were today. So thank you, Helen. It was and your reading of it, I listened to it in audio, was excellent. So oh, I, th- I thoroughly you. enjoyed it. You,
1: you're very it's soothing.
0: So
1: few people keep saying this to me. I I, um, I haven't considered myself a, a soothing person, a bit more of a termagant, to be honest, but um, people are saying this and it's quite nice. <laughs> it's wonderful.
0: And if people want to follow you, they've listened to this and they thought, gosh, I didn't know about Helen. Where do I find her? Where are you most active?
1: Uh, I have a substack which I'm um, just starting up again. I've been unwell for a while, um, and that, that you can just find that Helen Helen Pluckrose substack, and it's called The Overflowing of a Liberal Brain. I'm too active on Twitter under h pluckrose. The book that you just mentioned, some people found it a little bit too theoretically dense, and so there is a there's a young adult version of it called Social Injustice that was adapted by young adult writer Rebecca Christensen. We're finding that it's mostly being bought by adults who wanted a bit more of a, a, an easy approach. In I mean, cynical theories should be accessible to everybody, but. You, you might have to read it a couple of times if, mm. if your background is something completely different. So social injustice might be better for perhaps younger viewers or people with no background at all in that.
0: As a lay person, as I said to you before we got started, when I came into this, because I'm an old farm um, girl, old classic common sense was drilled into me. And of course, this is the complete antithesis of common sense. So trying to get your head around it, yeah, can be a challenge well Helen thank you very much for your time this morning it has been greatly appreciated this is Helen Pluckrose don't disappear though we've still got more great content here on counterculture and thank you so much Helen I really do appreciate
1: your time thank you Marie It's nice to talk to you this is counterculture with Marie Busky
0: Wednesdays at 10am on reality check radio